Lord, we've just heard your word, um, whether it comes through the word room we're in, or it comes over broadband, <laughs> a little bit tinny or distorted occasionally. It's still your word, God. And it is so good. I pray that that we that I would be able to share, uh, to make real, to help us apply, to help us investigate, um, just to help us to be um, good sheep under you, our shepherd, um, that are listening, that are desiring, that are hungering, God, for you today, hungering so much that we've come together uh, in extreme circumstances, that we are meeting together still, God. Um, I'm so grateful. Uh, bless my, my words. Uh, help me to communicate your truth. Uh, in your son's name, amen. <clears throat> All right, uh, I'm preaching sitting down, which is just super weird for me. I was like, can I even do this? You guys, I mocked up like a pulpit in my living room because I was so nervous that I wouldn't be able to preach sitting down. And I was like, this is dumb. I'm not doing this. This is dumb. So here I am um, in a comfortable spot where I do a lot of my sermon prep sometimes, um, looking at all of your faces uh, and I am just praying that, that we can, um, get so much out of this. So, uh, we are in week two of a series that I never expected, uh, to be preaching during a pandemic. Uh, and yet the word of God always, uh, works no matter the time or place or what's happening. Uh, it always has food for us and I'm excited about this week. Uh, so I've, I've, I'm calling this series, I've actually renamed it a few times. Uh, I'm calling it Reawakening the City of God. And the reason I'm calling it that is I really believe if, if you look at this book as a whole, Nehemiah is a man who is called because he understands he is a remnant. He is a part of a remainder of the city of God. What do I mean by that? He's, he's a part of the people of faith that worship the one true God, no matter where they are in the world, a city that isn't bound by physical location. Um, and yet he is traveling back to Jerusalem to rebuild uh, an earthly city in which the people of God can gather. And people are already there. The city already has people in it, uh, but they're not awakened. They don't, they don't have a leader they don't have a purpose and a mission. In fact, these people are depressed, downtrodden, impoverished, defenseless, and have literally gathered in a huddle in this city because they're the only ones that the Babylonians thought weren't worth taking into exile. So the Babylonians came, and this is late in the timeline. For those of you who missed last week, this is late in the timeline of the Bible. This is literally the last historical thing that happens. This is the last historical record we have from the Old Testament. So before we get to the birth of Jesus, this is the last piece of, of sort of writing that we have as a record. And the state of Jerusalem is awful. What has happened is that through multiple um, kings, they have gotten farther and farther and farther away from God. They have disobeyed his law. They have just basically said, 
We don't care about what you're about. We want to be great in the eyes of men. We want to be kings with power. We want to make alliances. We want to play the game of global politics. And we want to be a great nation. Forget the fact that God made us a great nation. We want to make ourselves into a great nation. And what God said is, all right, I'll let you have your way. See what you can do on your own. And their kingdoms just fall apart and unravel. They're taken away into exile. The world powers that are far stronger than them. The world powers like Babylon and then Assyria after them. They're taken away into exile. And the people are just basically incorporated into the world empire. They don't have a homeland. They don't have a place. They have no temple. And here they live for, for hundreds of years in exile. And finally, uh, they send back a small group. And, and this is sort of politically motivated, I think. The king at that time was saying, well, Jerusalem was a city. It could be a good outpost for us, a way to manage trade and deal with the traffic coming through the Middle East. That's a highly trafficked area. Let's get this going. And simultaneously, for Ezra, who is the, who is the man appointed to go back, the sort of priest appointed to go back, um, for him, it was an answer to prayer. It was an answer to God's promise because God was going to gather the nations that were scattered and he was going to bring them back. Um, I don't need these. He was going to bring them back um, and gather them again. Well, in the first chapter, what we find out is that Nehemiah has gotten word from his brothers that have come from Jerusalem after years of, of rebuilding. Um, and it's a mess. They've got the temple up. It's kind of like a Imagine almost like a cinder block temple. We've got Solomon's temple with all of its glory, right? And their temple is like, does the job. But literally while people are gathering to com commemorate it uh, and, and sort of start their first worship, the older men who remember Solomon's temple are literally bawling because it's so not what they want. It's so far from the temple that it should be. And so this is all that's left of Jerusalem is this one sort of, you know, it's a temple, but it's not what people want. It's not a glory. And, and the news comes back to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. He's, he's in the royal court in the citadel of Susa in Persia. And word comes back to him and he's just crestfallen. He had thought that this would be a place, finally, my people the ones who went home would be rebuilding and there would be greatness and we would have a city again and pretty soon all go back and it will be wonderful. And he gets this news more or less of what I called sort of a, a spiritual sense of stillbirth. All of the anticipation, everything's going to happen and then disappointment. And so that's where we, that's where we leave off. And we were talking about mourning. Nehemiah was mourning, but he wasn't just mourning his own dreams fallen. He wasn't just mourning his own disappointments he was mourning the disappointments of God's promise of a spiritual disappointment, of a spiritual burden of saying, no, I know that this is supposed to be God. Why isn't this? This is a good thing. This was supposed to work out. What is your plan? But he doesn't allow that to, to take his belief away. He doesn't allow that to um, undo him, to, to be a moment where he says, you know what, God, I don't even think you're real. You know, that was, that was picture perfect and it didn't work out. So God, I don't know if I can buy into this whole thing. No, Nehemiah is a man after God, a man who's in the word daily, 
who is who is familiar with the law. And what we found last week is he prays a prayer that is literally like verbatim taken out of Deuteronomy 30, right? It's verbatim. He, he takes a promise verbatim and he quotes it. And he says, God, this is what you said. I know your word. This is what you said, that you will take us even when we are exiled to the farthest countries. And you will gather us if we return to you and obey in your promise. And that's where we left off. Is that This is a man who was wrecked. A godly man who is wrecked. A man who really desires goodness for his people. And he's wrecked. Well, in the, in the previous chapter, what we found out is that it, it, it appeared that he was in days of fasting and praying. And, and this is where you have to kind of dig into the text. He wasn't just in fasting and praying for days. He was in fasting and praying for four months. So if you look at the start in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, if you do have your Bibles with you, and we'll kind of work through this verse by verse. Um, in verse 1, he says, in the month of Nisan. Well, that's basically March, April. And before it was Kislev, which is November, December. So we're looking at an entire season, a quarter has gone by, of him in a deep state of depression, of fasting, of prayer, of saying, God, I don't understand how this could be, but I'm not leaving your side. I'm just so sad. And I think some of us can relate to that, being in sustained periods of depression, of mourning. Why isn't it that God... I thought that this was God's plan. Why isn't it happening? Trying to understand where is it that my dreams are getting in the way of God's dreams? Was I, was, was I after one of my own dreams? Do I have to check myself? And so Nehemiah goes through this process in the previous chapter where he, he, he drills down and he says, it's not just the sins of my people. I own that. It's the sins of me. I am part of the reason too. I have to believe that I am part of the reason. And he repents. He says, forgive me for my sins and the sins of my father. He goes through a deep investigation over this disappointment. And then this, this chapter begins his action. And so today what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about what it means to plan according to God's word. What it means for us as we're planning that we plan according to God's word. And then we are going to look at the enemy's voice. So there's two big components to this. Actually, there's three. There's, there's what, how do we plan like Nehemiah? Nehemiah is a character who has traits that help us understand what godly people do in planning. And then we have to look and say, how do we approach the enemy? Later on in the chapter, he encounters resistance, right? People mock him and ridicule him. How do we encounter the enemy's voice? And then what we see is Nehemiah rallies a defense. So those are the three things we're going to work through. First, planning according to God's word. We've talked about the fact that Nehemiah's character is exemplary, that he's a man of God, and that he investigates his disappointment. He says, am I just disappointed by my own, sort of, as I said, Bonhoeffer called the wish dream, my own fantasies, my own ideas of what should be for me? Or am I actually sad about something that needs to be corrected? And he, and he realizes, no, this is something that needs to be changed. God's promise is that we would return and be gathered. So the fact that it didn't happen this, this time doesn't mean that it should never happen. And then he begins to look around him and he begins to assess his situation. And he, in, the, in the end of chapter one, he gears up and he says, and he sort of prays a prayer that says, help me as I approach this man. And then we get that ultimate cliffhanger. He's the cupbearer to the king. Help me as I approach this man. Who? The king of the known world. 
Nehemiah is in a whole different place than Ezra. Nehemiah has built relational equity. He's built a network. He has a community. And he is, so to speak, friends with the rich and famous, right? Nehemiah has access to people with great worldly power. And he sees the connection point there. And he says, there's something I can do. In his mind, he's saying, there's something I can do about this. I want to give you a little bit of an illustration because I believe that part of Nehemiah's passion comes out of his own wreckage of his sin. And I want to give us an example here. Um, many of us are familiar with Lord of the Rings, right? So in the first book of Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, there's a character named Boromir, right? The Fellowship has gone out, the, the Hobbits have gone with Aragorn, right? The Ranger, and they've assembled the Fellowship and they have elves and they have the humans and they have the dwarves and they have all these people, right? Well, Sean Bean plays Boromir in the movie and he's just so amazingly. By the way, he hasn't been like in anything in a long time, which is a travesty, but uh, he plays Boromir. And if you remember in the movie or in the book, the very end of the book, Boromir is tempted by the one ring, right? The one ring of true power, the ring that only Frodo can carry because of his innocence. He's tempted. He says, that ring will give me so much power, right? And we all know that Tolkien, as a, as a strong, devout Catholic, had used this story to paint us a picture of the temptation and the power of sin, right? So Boromir is tempted by the one ring of power. And he says, he, he encounters Frodo off in a clearing away from everybody else. And the ring speaks to him. And he sins so deeply in his envy and his covenant to the point of violence where he's about to raise his sword, right? And then he's wrecked by what he's doing. Frodo sort of hides the ring and the power is taken away and he's wrecked by his own sin. And what transpires over the end of that story is so glorious and beautiful because we see a full repentance of Boromir, but not just a passive repentance. Boromir repents in a way where he turns and he says, I have utterly ruined myself. I have sinned so deeply beyond repair. I'm wrecked. My honor is gone. Everything. The only way I will get it back now is to rage against the hordes of evil that are coming and attacking the man that I was trying to steal from, right? So as the orc hordes roll in, he goes down in glory. And it is just the most powerful scene of repentance in action to the point of death, right? He sacrifices himself out of repentance, he says, what I have done has so convicted and hurt me, has so moved me, I am so ruined by it, that I'm not going to kill myself. I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn from it, and I am going to, I'm going to plan and move in glorious ways for the purpose of good, right? So Nehemiah, you might say, well, John, Nehemiah is not like going down in flames right here. But Nehemiah is at a precipice. He's at a turning point in this story where he is now saying, I've got to do something that might result in my death. Ezra was told when in the previous book, Ezra, Nehemiah is sort of a sequel to Ezra, right? Comes right after Ezra. Ezra has actually been told the reason that the wall doesn't get finished is Ezra is commanded by this same king to stop, to halt. You can't build this wall anymore. It's, been, it's become politically unpopular. The other nations around are getting frustrated and upset. They're getting angry. And the king says, fine, we'll just stop building the wall. So for all Nehemiah knows, his audacious request could result in his beheading. For all Nehemiah knows, that's what could happen. That's the gravity of what's about to take place. 
And so let's move through the story in this process to get in this mood of who Nehemiah is. He walks into the court and it says, in the, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Well, let's paint a little picture here. He's, he's not just, uh, Artaxerxes may have just drank in private. Come on, he's the king of Persia. But he's probably drinking at a party, right? This is probably a big festival. And he, as the cupbearer, is bringing wine and he's serving the king as the king's personal cupbearer. And we're in a festival. Historians know that Artaxerxes in this time period was known for throwing these big raging parties in his court, right? Inviting everybody and having festivities. We know this is popular, right? Some of you may remember the story of um, uh, the king at the end of Babylon, Belteshazzar, Belshazzar, I forget his name now. The, the king at the end of Babylon who, as Babylon is getting invaded, they're just drinking. They're just like, whatever, we're going to party, right? This, this is, this is in, a, in a culture that is so built on men, they, they have these kind of just crazy parties. And so he brings this wine for him and he's basically, imagine Nehemiah in this jovial party. And the king has asked him to bring wine. He's brought it, and it says, Nehemiah says, I had not been sad in his presence before. So Nehemiah had been able to pretend, or he'd just been able to be in a pretty good mood. Not anymore. Now Nehemiah's wrecked. He's moved. And also he knows that something's brewing in his heart. Something has to happen, right? I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I mean, it's an interesting, like, this is such amazing storytelling to me. Who talks like that? Somebody only talks like that when they actually kind of care. The king cared about his cupbearer. They, they had some connection, some relationship. He said, this can only be sadness of the heart. But at the same time, the king is saying to him, he's saying, we need to fix this, man. You're kind of being a downer, Right? How many of you guys are familiar with the SNL skit, Debbie Downer? That's like my era of SNL. That was like big in my era, right? Where it's like the, the, she's, she's this character that's in this situation and it's always like a good time. And then she like says co some comment. In fact, the most recent one they had was when coronavirus was still funny, which was like three weeks ago. They had one where they would zoom in on her giving a fact about the virus, right? And it would be like, you know, and she's just ruining and tearing apart these parties. And I just thought about this and I go, this king is like, you're going to be a downer, man. Don't Debbie Downer this party. He's like, how do we recover out of this? You are going to mess this up. So he says, so, so the king's motivated. He says, this can be nothing but sadness of the heart. Tell me what's going on. And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have not been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah can't, he can't recover. It's terminal for him. He's like, if I can't voice my opinion, if I can't be real with you, king, right now, I might as well die. I mean, I think that's kind of the mood he's in. He's like, I'm just wrecked by this. I can't go on. I need to be real with you. So he says, he says that, and the king says, what is it you want? I mean, just imagine a man with all of the power in the world can literally do anything. He's saying, he's saying, yeah, okay, just tell me what you want, man. Like, he's got pressure, right? And so Nehemiah is in a really unique situation here. Nehemiah is utterly convicted, and God has set the stage for him for a multitude of reasons. 
for, for his plan to unfold. And so he says, he says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. How many of you have done these kind of prayers? These are not prayers with words. I highly doubt Nehemiah was sitting there like uttering a prayer in words. These are the kind of prayers that you pray when you have like a split second, right? This is Nehemiah being a man who's so in God's word, who so lives daily in the presence of God, that he can, in a heartbeat, commune with God, bring God into the space with him, recognize that he has an ally in God, which we'll talk about later, this presence of an ally. And it can bolster him, right? He can say, I can do this because I have God with me. That's the kind of prayer that Nehemiah is saying. I, then I pray to the God of heaven and I answered the king, right? He doesn't have a long time. He just has to answer. And he says, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the, to a, the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. And then, of course, we see that the king asks him some details, and Nehemiah is able to provide all the details. How long will your journey take? Nehemiah tells him. By the way, we find out later, Nehemiah, this is, he told the king his journey would take 12 years. I'm going to go for 12 years. Like, this is not a short trip. And I don't, I don't think, like, the king was so drunk that he was just like, fine, whatever. I think they literally sat down and the king was like, all right, come over here. I've got to figure this out with you. And they hashed out some, like... You know, like if you're in a, a cocktail party, sometimes conversation gets serious in a business party or something. And you actually go to the side and you start to have like a meeting. I think they are basically are like, look, OK, you're serious about this. Let's have a meeting. What is it you need? How long are you going to be gone? Um, how can this be for my benefit? Right. The king, the, you have to look at this from the point of view of the king. The king is saying, how can I work with this? Nehemiah seeing the situation, he's saying, how can I work with this for God's glory? The king is not saying, how can I work with this for God's glory? The king is saying, all right, I'm an opportunist. I see something happening here. How can I create a new outpost? Okay, we're going to build this wall. Okay, I've, I've said we're going to do this. All right, how do I make this to my advantage? So he equips Nehemiah. So Nehemiah steps out in bravery, in persistence. He's listening and he's using the right timing right? And he's being real. He's, he's assessed what he has to work with. He's assessed where he's at. He's checked that it is part of God's promise that it's in line with God's word, which is so crucial, you guys. We might have audacious plans. We might have dreams. We might be brave and courageous and bold. But he says, I've checked long and hard for four months. I've mined the depths of my soul. I am a servant for God and God alone. This is my Boromir-like act of repentance and boldness for God and not for me. I'm trying to make things good here. This is not for my gain. I would be perfectly comfortable in the palace, in the citadel of the world's superpower. Much more so than venturing with a ragtag team of people to a, a broken down city, you know, with a, with a sad excuse for a temple trying earnestly to, to, to fulfill God's promise. He, he's not doing God's plan according to God's word does not mean that Nehemiah is not going to have hard work ahead of him. And so Nehemiah has boldness and courage to do this. And I don't think Nehemiah is manipulative. I don't think he's coming in here and he was just like, oh, I'm going to be so sad. I'm going to get my way. I think Nehemiah was truly wrecked. And I think we can really relate to that. And we can be at times in our life where 
we just can't shake the sadness. We just got to be real with people. And sometimes the most beautiful glory, the most amazing things happen when we just sit down and we go, I got to be real, right? We've been going through confession in our church. And when we just sit down with each other and we say, this is not easy. I don't want to talk about this, but I just got to be real. It's amazing what comes out of that. And I see Nehemiah in a way confessing to Artaxerxes. He's saying, I'm just going to lay it out. At this point, I've got to lay it out and I've got to trust in God. I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to, I've got a plan and I'm going to lay it out for you. And he does. And the king grants him his request, but it says, not because it was a good worldly opportunity. It doesn't say the king granted my request because he desired to have an outpost and I thought it would be a good idea too. And so we went. It says, because the gracious hand of my God was on me. Nehemiah is so in touch with God and so discerning and listening that even if, even if none of the requests had been granted and he had been beheaded, I guarantee you, Nehemiah would have said, and it was God's will that that should happen. That's the level of commitment we see from the character of Nehemiah, right? He is so in tune and he is he's so faithful in his planning in accordance with God's word. So there's a phrase that um, we don't use very much anymore, but you go, you go to like stories, movies um, from 19th century England, you're going to hear this a lot more. God willing. You heard somebody say that? I'm going to do that. Yeah. Are, are you going to plant the field today? God willing, right? Like it's, not, it's, a, it's like not a term we hear anymore. It's kind of an archaic term. But it's kind of sad in some ways that we've lost that sensibility that we have a strong drive, but we have a loose grip, right? Nehemiah has a strong drive. He has plans. He has options. He's ready. He's confident. He's an administrator. Nehemiah didn't get to be a cupbearer cup by not being somebody who could discern and who could figure out and who could plan and who could make and who could calculate and assess and use wisdom. So he has a strong drive, but he has a loose grip to the point where, loose, where Nehemiah can say, God willing. In every step of the way, Nehemiah will be able to push hard, but always say, God willing. And it made me think of something that's really uh, pertinent for our time right now. Uh, the phrase God willing is something I need to use this week. Uh, I had a day yesterday that was just awful from my own standpoint, because I had so gotten in my head that I would do something that, I, that was not wise to do, that would be around too many people right? I'd so gotten in my head that we would, we would go on a great walk, Powell Butte, and it'd be wonderful, but Powell Butte was packed. And I sat there and, oh guys, it was real. I was like, this is really disappointing. I hate this virus. I hate this situation. I am so frustrated right now. I had a strong drive and a tight grip and it wrecked me, right? And it wasn't until I took like a long walk by myself that I was like, this is what it means to have a loose grip. This is what James says about this. James 4, verse 13. He's talking, um, and he says, now, he, he writes, he says, now listen. He's so colloquial about this. He's so, like, accessible. He says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city. Spend a year there. Carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if, if it is the Lord's will, 
we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your own arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Okay? But then, this is the crazy part, he throws out the converse, right? He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. Gosh, this is a fine line, James. This is tough. He's saying, look, don't, don't plan your own plans, but at the same time, don't avoid what you ought to do. Talk about a strong drive and a loose grip. He's saying, get your drive on the right things and then pivot. Let God work. Listen. Plan. But don't have your own schemes. Don't have your own plans divorced from God. You're just setting yourself up for failure. Man, and in, this, in these days, over the next few weeks, it is going to be such a challenge, such a good challenge for me to say, I need to have a strong drive. In this time, I need to have a really strong drive. Community is hard. You have to create community in this climate. Community does not just happen to you right now. How do I create community? How do I serve people proactively? Right? We talked about in my, my weekly, I said, we got we to gotta make phone calls and not send texts. Right? People are encouraging people to get gift certificates, order takeout. Right? How do, how do I do what I was normally doing? How do I live my life? in this sort of remote fashion. It takes strong drive and it takes plans and it takes structures. And any of you that are homeschooling right now, like just slapped in the face homeschooling, like we're just like, I need a schedule, right? I need to plan, I need to administrate. We have all become Nehemiahs in our sense that we need to administrate, we need to have a schedule. Even if we're working remotely, we gotta wake up on time, we gotta get moving, right? We need to have a strong drive and a loose grip. So that kind of sets the stage for Nehemiah. How is, he, how is he a planner according to God's word? Now we get to the drama, right? We've stepped through this first hoop. Nehemiah has been granted his wish, and we get to the first sense of drama. We encounter the enemy. Verse 9, he says, So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates. Some translations say of the place beyond the river, right? This is how they thought of places back then. It's the place beyond the big river. The Euphrates, the Tigris and Euphrates, you guys, they imagined that the Garden of Eden was kind of in this area. It's present-day Iraq, right? So they're saying, they're saying Persia is inland from that. It's east, more in kind of the Afghanistan, in that region, Iran, right? Iran is more like where we think of as Persia. And where, where, where he is asking them to go is all the way over towards Israel, which as we know is on the coast, right near the sea. Not immediately on the coast, but near to the coast. So he's going, he's going a long distance, right? So I went to the governors of this place beyond the river. There, there are nations there. there. There are peoples there that live there that are just under this empire, right? And I gave them the king's letter. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Man. Nehemiah is in decent shape. And it says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, just heard about this, right? They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. All right, so I want to dig into this for a minute. Sanballat the Horonite, just to give you some historical space, um, the Horonites and the Ammonites lived to the north and to the east of Israel. Later on, we'll hear about Geshem the Arab. He lived to the south. So basically, all of the people around the nation of Israel, or all the people around Jerusalem, perk up. Oh, 
they're going to rebuild that city that had just literally been some, probably some shepherds and some really, really poor people camping out by fires in little huts. They're going to rebuild that, the place of Jerusalem, the place that the people that came in through Canaan and, and shouted and the walls of Jericho, they're going to rebuild that. That's a problem. We don't want that. We don't want a new nation to deal with. We, we remember that there was something about that God that, that was really scary. We don't want that, right? The second they even hear of it, a few different things happen. One, they hear of it happening, but they also hear what? That they have letters from the king. They have cavalry and army officers. They're endorsed. This might spell change for them in their nations. Are they falling out of power, right? What's happening? Well, how does this relate to us? Why do we even bring this up? We need to ask ourselves, in a story like this in a narrative, we need to say, Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite are agents for the enemy. These are human actors for the enemy, right? And we're all familiar with talking about the enemy with the devil, with Satan, whatever we want to call him. He's used in all different kinds of names in the Bible. We have to think about what the enemy is doing what he's orchestrating, because just as God is willing things, the enemy is at work. We know this, reading the Bible. We know that the enemy has power that people give to him. We have Sambalot and Tobiah who have given their hearts and their minds to the world, to the flesh, and to the enemy, right? They are agents for him. And the second the enemy hears of God's power and providence, he perks up. He's listening. And the second we are people that plan according to God's word, the enemy perks up and he is listening. Nehemiah is going to have a hard time, not just because life is hard. Nehemiah is going to have a hard time because he is now going to fight a spiritual battle. Nehemiah is acting on God's behalf and he is going to encounter God's enemies. It's just a, just a real fact that when we are people as a church who live according to God's word, who are, who are serving and loving each other, who are abiding by this ancient thing we call the Bible that, that people are just like, that makes no sense. Why are you doing that? People are going to perk up, especially if we're changing our identities, right? If some of the live in these camel, we've talked about this camouflage chameleon-like lifestyle that some of us have lived through where we've gone from sort of nominal Christians to devoted Christians. And our friends are kind of like dism either dismissive, put off by it, or they're perking up for good or for bad. Right? They're either perking up to begin mocking or they're perking up because they're, they're legitimately curious. Right? So Nehemiah has encountered the enemy. And the enemy has a tactic. Right? The enemy, we know the enemy because the enemy is somebody who is, verse 10, very much disturbed that someone would come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Well, we can put that in modern language promote the welfare of the people of God. Somebody who would promote the welfare of the people of God. So if we ourselves are people who are promoting the welfare of the people of God, we got enemies, you guys. We got to get ready. So what are the tactics of the enemies? Well, in this story, we can see a few different tactics, right? We have to zoom down. I'll come back to this in between here for a second, but I want to go to verse 19 to look at the tactics, right? Verse 19, but when Sambalot the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this they're doing, you asked? Are you rebelling against the king? All right. So we've got mocking. We've got ridiculing. We can call that jeering. 
taunting, disparaging, dismissing. Here's the kind of things the enemy will be saying to you. Here's the kind of things you will hear in your mind and hear from other people. That other people will say that they're better than you and that you're on the wrong track. That the voices in your head will say you're on the wrong track. That you're an idiot. That you need to be smart. Right? That you're small. And if you would just stop doing this, you could be big like everyone else. Right? That your way will end in ruin and their way will end in success. That what you're doing has got you on the wrong track. It's going to result in your ruin. That this, this, this God you're following, these people you're churching with, that's going to end in ruin. That's a mistake. You're misusing your life. Right? They begin by mocking and ridiculing. This is Satan's way of working on our mind. And then secondly, they intimidate. So when the mocking and ridiculing didn't stop Nehemiah, through verse 11 through verse 18, he's, he's working, he's assessing the wall, right? And we'll get to that in a minute. But they, they see something actually happening. They see a people moved. They see a people changed. And they said, are you rebelling against the king? So they start pulling out bigger guns, right? They use a method of intimidation. They're insinuating and in threatening and implying what the next action could be. I think, I think we're familiar with this. Can you guys hear me okay? It says my internet connection's unstable. Everybody hear me okay? Okay, cool. Um, they are the enemy will intimidate us. He will seek to create a sense of unease and fear. Are you rebelling against the king? Guess what that is picking at? That is picking at Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king, coming to rebuild a nation. Nehemiah, do you realize what this looks like? Do you realize what you're doing? Do you realize what other people are going to be thinking? That you're rebuilding, and yes, you have permission right now, but you're going to rebuild a wall, you're going to have defenses, and then you're going to leave the Persians. You're going to become your own nation. You're going to revolt. And just imagine what's going to happen to you then, Nehemiah. So they're, they're intimidating. They're creating a sense of unease and, uh, and fear. And I, I, again, movie analogy. We got two of them today. Double hitter today. All right. And this one, I don't know how many people, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, but it's a weird movie. 2001 Space Odyssey. Okay. At least we know the theme song for 2001 Space Odyssey. All right. Um, the start of the movie just has like apes throwing things around for 30 minutes. It's the most bizarre movie. It's a sci-fi movie, right? It's based on an Arthur C. Clarke science fiction novel. In the most pivotal scene in the movie, I'll just set, just, just barely set the stage for you here. This is a spacecraft that has been launched um, out into outer space to go to one of the moons of Jupiter, right? And it's a two-man crew, right? We're familiar with their like in cryogenic freezing hibernation. And then there's the supercomputer that runs the ship, right? HAL 9000, the supercomputer. Um, just one big red light, just the most menacing just just amazing. Um, anyways, they wake up, they do their mission, and Hal's assisting them. Hal, Hal maintains all the life support on the ship, right? And Hal's this sort of disembodied voice, right? There's just this one light, it never changes, and then there's just this, this uncanny, calm voice, right? And they begin to realize that Hal believes, the, they're, they're in a place in the mission where some things have gone wrong, and they begin to realize that Hal has decided in his supercomputing power that the only way that they're going to complete the mission 
is to kill off the two astronauts. That HAL can complete the mission. The supercomputer can complete the mission, but not with the astronauts. They won't be able to do it. They won't have, I forget if it was oxygen or power or whatever. They're not going to be able to make it to where they need to go without man on the ship. So HAL and his infinite knowledge, right, and his supercomputing power begins to make some changes. And these two begin to talk, right? The two men, the two astronauts begin to talk. And they are scheming. And they're saying, the only way we're going to survive this is if we take care of how. We got to do something, right? They have realized that, that, that to complete the mission with man on the ship, right? That they need to do something to take care of the problem. And then they will complete the mission. And and how in this, just like, just watch the YouTube after this. It's so great. How how says, he, he talks to Dave and he has just... <laughs> He has just just awful scene, right? The the astronaut, the Dave Bowman's side character, this astronaut has been has gone out to repair the ship, and Hal has locked the doors to keep him from coming back in, right? So there's this just like horrific scene where he's banging, like he's banging the ship, and he realizes he can't get back in the ship, right? And it's all in silence because in space you can't hear, and it's a vacuum, so it's just like silence, and this guy's banging. And Dave, the other, the other astronaut, is like freaking out, right? And he's starting to like try and manually untangle things and get things. And Hal goes, just what do you think you're doing, Dave? Right? And just this like cold, creepy voice. What do you think you're doing, Dave? And Dave says, open the pod bay doors, Hal. It's like this famous scene. Open the pod bay doors, right? And Hal goes, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. But how, to me, how is like the, the manifestation of evil, right? Of cold, calculated evil, right? It's just like the most famous scene. I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. And like, he, he is suggesting first to Dave, he says, what do you think you're doing? Do you think you're better? Do you think you're smarter? Do you think you can figure this out? I just love Gemma right now, Alex. Can we all just pay attention to the fact that Gemma is just rocking this? <laughs> Um, so follow, follow with me, like how as a personification of evil, right? Against all mankind, right? He is saying, no, I don't want this, this mission to be completed. And he says, I'm, he just stops him. He suggests and he intimidates because at that time, Hal has a lot of power, right? He, the supercomputer maintains the life support systems on the chip. That Men have given this evil power, this, this computer, this cold, calculated power who believes it doesn't need them nor want them, but only wants itself. Sound familiar? A computer that only wants itself to survive and will only use men, has decided it only needs men to get what it needs to get done so it can complete the mission. Right? That's how the enemy thinks, you guys. When you listen to the enemy, it is using and manipulating you, and then it will throw you away. Any tactics it can use to get your ear, any way it can get you to hear, it will do. It will do anything to keep you listening. Right? So, so let's move on. We're going to come back to that because that's just, I'm sorry, it's too good of a metaphor. I'm going to come back to it. There's more. Uh, what does Nehemiah do next? He rallies a defense. So skipping back to verse 11, after he encounters 
the Horonite and the Ammonite and these forces of evil, the enemy, right? The people that are going to work against him. After we encounter the enemy, what does Nehemiah's character show us that we ought to do? Rally a defense. So Nehemiah does two things. He assesses the situation, right? Verse 11 through 16 are just kind of this amazing, almost like a page ripped out of a guy's journal from like 2,500 years ago, right? It's like he wrote, I went out after staying there three days and I went out at night and just me, I just got on a donkey, right? And I just went out at night and I assessed the situation in private. Nehemiah as an administrator is a wise person. He's taking time everywhere he can to assess the scenario. So he's in a new place. He's in a new dynamic. He's got new problems now and he has to assess it. Think about this in a few different ways. Maybe some of you have been in like a work situation where you get transferred to a new department or you have a new manager, you have new colleagues. Um, you have to figure out, you have to kind of sniff it out. What's the, what's the problem here? What are we after? Who am I working with? What's going on? Or here's another way of putting it, maybe in a dating relationship, you're meeting, you're meeting um, your boyfriend or girlfriend's family, right? You're scouting out the walls at night on a donkey, maybe. You're like figuring out what's this family about? What does that mean about my boyfriend or girlfriend or my husband or my future husband or wife? What am I getting into here? What's the state of things? What are we up against? And he does that so that he can then confidently share God's work to other people. So then he, he assesses that. He sees what they're up against. He knows God is capable and he also knows what he's in for. And he says to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. And then this is pivotal. And then I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And so they replied, let us start building. So they began the good work. I mean, this is so powerful. I, we have been as a church great at this, of saying to each other when we see God working, saying, man, look at what God did there. That service was great, not because of anything we did, it was great because of God. That passage spoke to me, God is at work in our community, right? To attribute as much as we can, both as leaders, for me as a leader, right? But also for you as the church to just be able to attribute the goodness that we see, the spiritual goodness, the thing that we know because we're in the word and we know what people that live by the word do and we know how God acts that we can say, gosh, I look at this and I see the hand of God. Because Nehemiah, and this is really important, Nehemiah is a leader. You could read this whole book as a study of leadership, right? But Nehemiah is always, always, always as a leader pointing to God. Nehemiah could have come in and said, I got an answer for that. I got construction, guys. I know people. We can take care of this. I got it. Just believe in me. I'm really good at this stuff, right? I was high up in the court in Persia. I got connections. We're going we're gonna to make Jerusalem happen. We're going to become a kingdom again. He could have treated it like the kings of Israel had treated it, right? Like the kings had begun to treat it where the prophets had said, you're not attributing things to God anymore. Watch it. Watch it. You got to listen. And they're like, nah, I'm not because I did it. Look at what I just did. And Nehemiah is saying, as he rallies a defense, he is not rallying a defense around the thing he built or the thing he wants to build. He's rallying a defense around the, the work that God is doing. He's rallying a people. He's rallying a church. 
He's rallying a group of people around a work that God is doing. And he's, he's based that all on a promise, right? He's based that all on promises that he lives by. And we have, we have promises like that. We don't have the same old covenant promises that Nehemiah had, but we have the new covenant equivalents, right? We have promises in the New Testament that have come to us and that have shown us what it is as a church that we're called to do and that we will do. I think of some of these. Mark 1, 17, Jesus says to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I don't know how many of you guys signed up for this church thing realizing that that's what you're called to do. The leadership isn't just called to do that. Uh, deacons and elders aren't just called to do that. People that are really good at evangelism aren't just called to do that. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's one of the promises we have. We're going to be made into fishers if we follow. We're going to be made people who share this, the gospel, the good news, that somebody would want us even when we have done nothing to deserve it. We're going to share that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, our toil is not in vain. Work matters. All kinds of work matters. Our toil from day to day matters. We have a promise from God who created us and the universe that our work matters. That's a great feeling right now when sometimes it feels like our work doesn't matter, when it feels like people don't respect us at our jobs, when it feels like our work is just going to get us in danger maybe for those of us who are in healthcare, right? That, that my work really matters. God promises you that your work matters spiritually. It matters on a divine level. It matters, it matters on a supernatural level. James 2, 5. The poor who love God will be rich in the kingdom of heaven. Bank accounts are going to dwindle in the next few months, it looks like. We are up for something. We are going to have to grapple with the fact that we may not be in the place we wanted to be in, that our portfolios may not look like they, that our retirement funds, that everything may look so uneasy and we can rest on a promise that the poor who love God will be rich in the kingdom of heaven. We have so many promises, you guys, at the end of the very end of the Bible, last chapter, Revelation 22, we will see God's face. We have a promise. We'll know him. He's not just some deity. We don't, we're not deists. We don't believe that, that a force just created the universe and then left. And is doing other stuff with his time. We believe that God is going to show us his face. Just as he knows, knows Jesus as a father, he will know us as a son. I mean, that's amazing. The promises that we have. Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. We're never going to get left. No matter how isolated we get right now, we're not alone. Do we have a God who, a God who is all-loving? who looks away at our sin when we come to him in confession. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Whew. God is able to make all grace abound in you. That means we're going to be able to be more patient, less angry, less condemning of other people. Boy, did I need that yesterday to be less condemning of other people's failures, to look over poor communication right now. Communication is going to be rough right now. That we, that we can have more grace because he has given us grace. That's a promise. I could go on and on. I'll give you one more. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Just uh, how could somebody with that kind of love for their own son give up their son to gain us and not love us? That's the gospel, you guys, that we have a God who gave up his own son who he loved dearly. Like, imagine how much you must love an only child of yours. And then imagine giving them up so that other people could save, be saved. Would you not love the other people like you would love your son or your daughter? Of course you would. That's your character. You've shown it by giving the person up that in ways that you needed to give them up. By giving that child up, you've said, I have this kind of love. And then when you have new people to welcome in, you are going to shower them with love. That's the kind of God we have. That's what he does. Those are the promises that we have to live in, to plan according to, as Nehemiah is planning, to face the enemy with and to rally a defense against, to rally our people, our church, to speak into, to assist with that. You guys, this is this is how, how to, 2001 actually has a super bizarre ending, but this is how the climax of the the main story, Noah's smiling because he knows what I'm talking about. This is how the main story ends. The main drama ends, okay? Dave has lost his other astronaut. He's dead. Hal killed him, right? And Dave manages through human cunning and ingenuity to begin to pull apart Hal's memory banks, his circuitry, and Hal's voice begins to like slow down, right? And Hal is pleading with him. His tactics totally change. He begins pleading with him. He says, I'm afraid. He wants, he wants Dave Bowman to pity him. I'm afraid. No, I need you. The enemy, you guys, is going to work any way it can to keep himself in our ear, by our side, to speak into us. And Dave does the right thing. He pulls out all the memory banks, right? He completely disconnects himself from the voice. He does not listen to it. Though it is saying and making promises and, and saying all of these things to him, pleading with him. Hal has lots of power. He ran the whole ship. He's super brilliant, right? Satan will promise you all kinds of worldly brilliance, all kinds of treasure, all kinds of things. And those things are real. Those are not fake treasures. If you listen to the, to, if you listen to the enemy, you can live a life full of wealth, prosperity, worldly comfort. But your ship will go down. How will use you up and jettison you out. Close the pod bay doors and it'll be just him at the end. That's his plan, you guys. The enemy's plan is to do that. And so us as people to rally our defense, we are asking people to get around us for a purpose of God. And we are denying that Satan has any right. If we look at verse 20, it's so powerful, Zach, when you read that. It's just so powerful to see verse 20. I answered them by saying this. This is how a person with the character of God responds to the voices of evil and temptation he says, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. No share. You don't get any part of it. This doesn't get shared with you. Not even 1%. Nothing. You don't have any claim to it. You have no right to it. This never was yours. 
What's a claim? I think of like, you know, Gold Rush when they had claims, right? That they would own something without being there. You don't have any claim to this. And you have no historic right to it. That's powerful. Just because Adam sinned, just because I, am, I have inherited original sin, just because I am broken and hurting and I have a proclivity to do the acts of the flesh and sin, just because all that, you have no historic right. And why do you have no historic right? This is the beauty of the gospel. You have no historic right because God has chosen me. For Nehemiah, God had covenanted with him and gave him a promise. For us, Jesus has died for us. There is no historic right, even though there is every worldly reason for us not to go to heaven. Satan has no historic right over us. He can't have us. No matter how much wrong we do, we will be servants of God. We will come back in confession. We will repent in heroic acts of Boromir-like glory and heroism. Because we are his servants and we will stand up at all times. This is the God that we worship. This is the love he has given for us. This is the son that he sent to die for us. This is the gospel that we get to share with other people. Is this kind of love. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you that you work. I thank you that your word works. I thank you that we can meet. I thank you that nothing that is happening in the world stops anything in your plan. Your plan is not on hold. Your providence is not absent. We now grapple with what it means to have disappointment, to mourn the things that are that we wish could be. We may be in a period of months of praying and fasting, but God, you have asked us to act, to be ready to have plans for the opportunity. And you have asked us to do this because you've saved us. We deserve nothing, but we have everything. And God, we exalt you. We glorify you. We ask for your presence. We ask that you would be our ally. That as others come and bully us and intimidate us with their words, that we could say we have a bigger, a bigger strong man. We have a bigger ally, a bigger fighter. God, we thank you so much. We pray that we can worship you with our families this Sunday. We thank you that you have given us the opportunity to steward our kids, to teach them. And I pray that we would devote our hearts to you more so now than even before in time of crisis. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.